Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In today's increasingly digital economy, cyber attacks are becoming more common and more sophisticated than ever before. Business and financial advisors who can be a step ahead of these attacks and earn the trust of their clients as stewards of their data could achieve a competitive advantage. We're joined today by Imran Ahmad, cybersecurity expert, lawyer, and University of Toronto professor, to look at how you can better protect yourself and your clients in the digital economy, and reflect on how the cybersecurity landscape looks from a financial services industry perspective. Imran is also a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, where he leads the technology practice and is the co-chair of the data protection, privacy, and cybersecurity practice. Imran speaks with host Pamela Ritchie today and will share some of the latest developments in the cybersecurity space. Among other questions today, Imran unpacks how the future of AI could impact security, understanding who hackers are and why they can target Canada, should an organization or government actually agree to pay ransomware, and in the event of a breach, what should the playbook look like? Whether you're an individual investor or a financial professional, hopefully today's podcast is of interest to you. Today's podcast was recorded on May 2nd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Welcome, great to see you Imran. Nice to be here, thanks for having me. So actually just, just tell us how you divide your time a little bit because you are a lawyer at a big law firm and you also are a professor and you're leading this team. So actually how does it kind of, how do you, how do you space out your time? Well, it's interesting you asked the question. Um, I, I teach, I write, but I also practice full time, which is which is a great mix to have, to be honest with you. When I'm in the classroom with the students, they're asking me extremely challenging, but quite fundamental questions around cybersecurity, about privacy, about technology. And so it keeps me on my feet. But in terms of dividing up my time, I've got a great spouse. She she keeps me on track and all of us in the household on track as well. So we, we make work, make it work. Yeah, yeah, I love that. No, but it's really interesting just to, as you say, sort of draw on all these different areas. It must be fascinating. I wonder if we can begin a little bit with put put Canada into the picture for us. We we heard about cybersecurity attacks. Are we any better, worse, lower down the ranks than any other country trying to deal with these cyber attacks that come from time to time? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and and often clients will ask me that exact question that you just asked me right now. Where where are we in the global? ecosystem, if you want to call it that, of cybersecurity. So in terms of, of country and target, we're an extremely attractive target for hackers. At the end day, and we'll talk a bit about this, I'm sure, you have different type of hacker groups that are out there. Some are just there to make some money, which is a vast majority. It's a criminal endeavor. There are others that are more state-sponsored. So governments were targeting Canadian organizations or Canadian businesses in particular for a political motive. But at the end day, we are a G7 country. We have a ton of intellectual property that we're creating. We saw that during the COVID pandemic where our rush to develop a vaccine made Canada and some of the other G7 countries an attractive target. So we're seeing a lot of that as well. But broadly speaking, Canada is an attractive target 
for sure, but also given the fact we're right beside the United States, one of the biggest economies in the world, but more importantly, a country that is very active in its foreign policy. So Canada does become you know, sometimes collateral damage in some ways in terms of just being besides such a big U.S. neighbor and global player in the G7 community. I wonder if we can just go a bit deeper into you laid out sort of the different areas. So so the business area, you know, where vulnerabilities are on the more sort of government side of things. What, what Take us through sort of the landscape of hacking. Like what, what do you think we all have seen and what do you think none of us have seen and what do you think some of us are just read headlines about? Yeah, it's a great question. If you ask the average individual on the street, you know, what is your definition? How do you imagine a hacker? They'll say it's probably some young kid, probably a teenager in a dark room with a hoodie on with a lot of computer monitors looking a bit like a matrix scene. But the reality is it's a very well organized business. You'll be shocked to hear a lot of these threat actor groups that are out there, especially those involved in the ransomware attacks we hear so much about in the media are very much organized like businesses, including, believe it or not, they have their own call centers and customer support lines. So what has happened over the years, and in particular over the last two years, is what we call the rise of ransomware as a service, or RAS. And what they do is you've got one group that will basically just steal credentials. Their goal is to send those phishing emails that you probably have seen in the past and encourage the recipient to click on it and give their username and password. And they're very good and stealthy at it. It's not your traditional old ones that you can pick up. Like they're actually spending a lot of time and effort. And that one group only targets that kind of information, getting your credentials. Once they have it, they pass it to the second group in the chain who will then go into your IT environment, look around what you have, do some reconnaissance essentially, and then steal some of the data, which is the most sensitive that they can get their hands on. Once they're done, they're out of the system, they tell the third group in the chain, it's your time to go in and actually detonate, which is like the ransomware itself, the malware, the bad software, and lock everything up like a filing cabinet that gets locked up. And then last but not least, the last group in that supply chain is going to be negotiating a ransom payment. So you have this huge chain where everybody is specializing, believe it or not, each one allowing them to scale up very significantly and ask some of these mind-blowing demands of ransom that you see in the media. As you say, it's a chain. So they're sort of trading information to the next level, essentially, for money. Okay. This this whole business side of things. Would you say that there are a lot of people on the on the side that you're on, uh, you know, fighting back against it, creating the security element against this? Uh, give us a sense of, of that landscape. Are we... Are you always going to be a step behind sort of the criminals? You always think that's the way it is in, in movies and TV shows. You know, the criminals are always a little bit ahead of the police, that type of thing. Is that the same yeah. way? A, a little bit. Let me give you and the viewers a bit of background as to how this whole industry has evolved. There was a time where if you wanted to do any kind of hacking, if you're a bad hacker, you needed to have some kind of specialized training. You needed specialized tools and they weren't readily available. What's happened is with a lot of countries around the world, bad countries getting involved in the hacking space, they're making their government develop hacking tools available to these hackers who are then you know, on the side transacting on these cyber attacks, which are more for personal gain as opposed to a politically motivated objective. So by making it so available and prevalent, you have a huge number of amateurs, quite frankly, in some cases, in other cases, very sophisticated threat actors getting into the cyber attack space. So the number has just exploded. The example I gave you earlier about ransomware as a service, that was really designed to scale up. You know, you're much better off being part of a group 
where you can hit multiple organizations as millions of dollars of ransom payments in Bitcoin or other types of cryptocurrency than to be a lone wolf who has to do all those different aspects and maybe hit two, three, four companies a month. And so from a business standpoint, it makes a lot of good sense. The challenge has been the good side, as you described it, there's a lot of specialization that goes into it as well. Putting lawyers aside more on the technical side of things, you need what we call forensic experts, folks who have been trained in a particular methodology, basically to find the breadcrumbs and figure out how the bad guys got in and shut that hole or that, that vulnerability within the IT environment. And it just takes time. Some of it is technical training, and then some of it's coupled with experience as you do more and more files. And regrettably, not just in Canada, but globally around the world, there's a, a net shortage of good cybersecurity experts who can help both on the technical side, and then obviously another area, which I'm sure we'll talk about, the regulatory compliance side, which is growing significantly. So, yeah, so interesting, that side of things, just as you say. And, and at the same time, we've had, of course, the pandemic, and so to an even greater extent, we've all worked online from various places. And I mean, probably most people you know, most people that other people joining us here today know have two to three, if not four to five devices. If you're juggling things with kids, you've got iPads all over the place. I mean, mm -hmm. there's just more time and, and actual uh, accounts out there, I guess, to be hacked. Like there's just a, a critical mass that's grown as well. That's a great point. I remember in the pandemic, I had these conversations with our clients. If you look at it from a technology standpoint, think of a triangle. At each tip, you've got either hardware, software, or data. And what the hackers, the bad guys are trying to do is essentially exploit one, two, or all three of those. So if you have weak software, they're going to try to get in by exploiting it. If they can intercept your data somehow, they'll try to get it. And their goal ultimately is to extort a payment it's a commercial activity for them. So we saw that increase materially during the pandemic. Just to give you a couple of numbers, because we tracked this at our firm. So at Norton Rose Fulbright Canada alone, in 2021, we managed 321 cases. That's one law firm in Canada only. Last year, it was about 500. Now we're trending closer to a 600 range for this year. So it is not subsiding. And what's interesting, uh, Pamela, is during that period of time when we saw that increase, we thought maybe during the pandemic, there must be a reason why these attacks have increased. And what we were told very, very clearly by some of the experts that were in the industry was what we're seeing right now is the tip of the iceberg because a lot of organizations were moving to remote work very quickly. Their focus was to give folks the opportunity to connect remotely from their laptops or bring your own device or by other means. Security was brought or layered in afterwards. So simple things like having multi-factor authentication, which is a tip I'm going to talk about a bit later, hopefully, for your viewers, is a great method to have, but it takes time to implement. And during the pandemic, it was very difficult to do so. So the increase really started from 2020, continued 21, and has not subsided since then. Well, let, let's get to some of the tips then. You know, if you could offer one or two or three or four or five things that we could all do, particularly financial advisors who are managing their own data, but certainly their clients' data. And I'm sure, you know, it's a concern for everyone. What, what would you say as a couple of things that just they can implement right away? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a question we get all the time. And what I want to do is provide something that's practical. Some of this, believe it or not, I know we're talking about digital but it's gonna sound pretty analog at the end day, but I think it's important. What hackers are looking to do, even those that are sophisticated, the ones that break into the most sophisticated IT environment, 
is they're trying to exploit a vulnerability. And nine times out of 10, that vulnerability is a human vulnerability. You know, it's just before the holidays, before a long weekend, it's the end of the month, you got to get a financial transfer out or you got to do something. And at the end day, you're rushing to do it because you're not paying much attention to the emails. So step number one that I would recommend your viewers implement is be extra vigilant for anything related to a financial request. Anything that comes in for a financial transfer, banking information changes, anything that seems out of the norm, you have to be vigilant. In fact, I will say your viewers in particular advisors are probably the best position compared to any other industry because they have a trust human relationship with their clients. They know them. So if you have a client who doesn't typically pull money out or doesn't do certain types of transactions or it's a bit abnormal for them to do so and you get a request, that should put off a red flag right away. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is what I talked about earlier, which is this multi-factor authentication. So what is that exactly? When you go into your email account, you know, your personal email account, for example, you have a username and then you have a password. And that's great up until the point a hacker can somehow get your username and password. There's an additional layer or a multiple factor second authentication, which is this token, this code that's generated. Some of you may already have it. Could be a code that you get through a text message. It could be a yes, I approve kind of screen pop up that you would get but have a multi-factor authentication. Even if you receive an email and you accidentally give your username and password, which happens, uh, you have this additional layer that will be your final line of defense if you wish. And then the third tip in, in sort of the top three that would give your viewers, which is something we should be really mindful of in a digital age. It's not just the fact things are digital, is that we're creating a ton of digital information as well. And by and large, clients are still reaching out by email. They're sharing a lot of information. Think of the client, for example, who sends a scan of their bank check. It says void on it, but it has their information, their name, their address, their banking, their institution, the transit number, and so on. You may have clients who are sharing information about instructions or their goals and so on. Information that may be very sensitive in some cases. If you're getting it by email, you just need to simply configure your email so that it automatically archives or deletes emails after a certain period of time. Human nature is to keep everything because we think we may want to use it down the road, but really the best practice is don't keep it typically more than six months if you don't have to. That's really interesting information because as you say, we have also had to scan things again through the pandemic, but it's it's great to be able to, to do things digitally. It's easier than having to go into an office and do it. So, so do that perhaps, but then get rid of it after a certain amount of time. What do you think of the future with AI, chat GPT? It, does it have ultimately the potential for good? We're seeing headlines that say not really that much about the good. <laughs> There's a lot on the other side, but tell us what you think when you see this proliferating. You know, it's it's interesting. I'm going to put my technology head hat on right now uh, because we're getting these questions. So over the years, over the last 10, 15, 20 years that I've been practicing, different types of technologies have popped up at different times. And what's interesting is it takes time for them to get traction. So a few years ago, you may recall blockchain was the rage. Everybody was talking about not just the cryptocurrency stuff, but just blockchain in terms of product liability tracking, a variety of others. And there have been other examples of this. You know, we think of Internet of Things or 5G technology and a variety of others. What's interesting and, and quite surprising to me, and this is why AI is top of mind right now, if you look at the example at ChatGPT, so just for your viewers, uh, ChatGPT was officially launched on November 30th, 2022. 
okay? That's like less than six months ago. Really new, they've hit a number of users which exceeds a sync, I think I can't even keep track, it's growing so quickly. Well over a million plus, which is huge in the space. And what is interesting is not just the fact you've got users who are using a technology, the number of contracts that are landing on our desks to review. Say, look, we're gonna be contracting with company X to implement AI type or generative AI type technology into our website, into our e-commerce site and so on. So it has accelerated. The level of adoption is something I've never seen before in terms of making a commercial use of it. So AI's adoption is significant. So if you look at November 30th up until I'd say end of January, there was a huge enthusiasm that there's huge potential about how we can use AI and generative AI in particular to make things better, make it accelerated, you know, implement efficiencies and so on. I'd say since then, since that January month, there's been a lot more questions. What does this mean? What does this mean in terms of security, which we can talk about from a cyber standpoint? What about privacy? What about copyright and content that's generated? You know, how are we gonna make sure that we're framing this from a legal perspective within our respective jurisdictions around the world to make sure that it has fairness built into it and there's an ethical component. So that discussion is really live right now uh, in terms of the use of that technology for sure. What are my general responsibilities as a financial advisor from a legal perspective to, to keep up with this, to make sure putting various firewalls, I don't know what you call them, into place? What do they need to do legally? From a cybersecurity standpoint, in terms of, of obligations, look, at the end of the day, an individual, your client, when they walk through the door, they're trusting you with some of the most sensitive information. There's really two broad categories of sensitive information that an individual, a human being has. One is your financial information. You know, identity fraud is a real concern, obviously. So financial information is one. The other one is health. So anything related to your medical treatment, diagnosis, and so on. And in some cases, Advisors will have access or at least have peripheral access to both of those, certainly on the financial, but maybe some on the health piece too, because it goes into financial planning or other type of purposes for relationship management with those particular clients. So what should they be doing? They should be very cognizant and aware of the type of information that's being provided to them. I often say this, not all personal information is equal. Some is more sensitive than others. So think of information like social insurance number, financial details, credit card information, banking details and the like. Information that you can assume could potentially be used to cause harm to an individual, like identity fraud. There's other information which is less sensitive. Name, address, telephone number, to the extent anybody ever still uses telephone books, can be found readily through public domain resources. So understanding the data you're collecting, number one. If you're not collecting a lot of personal information that's sensitive, your risk is lower, frankly speaking. Number two, you don't have to be at the bleeding edge of technology. It's not a question of spending a ton of money on technology, although there has to be a reasonable investment in there. It's not necessary. Sometimes you'll be surprised how a lot of the existing technologies that are out there have great security built into it. They just haven't been turned on. Think of, think of a house. You've got a house. You want to make sure you don't get burglared. At the end of the day, you install an alarm system through whatever service provider. But if you leave the house and don't turn the, turn the alarm on or the alarm goes or the alerts go to the wrong email address or telephone, it's not gonna really work well. So really using what you have well, making sure it's configured. So if any of your advisor or, or viewers who are watching this are asking themselves, what should I be doing? I'm not the IT person within my organization, is go and have a conversation with them and say, are we properly configured? 
Are we sure that we've got the right protections? We're maximizing the technology we already have in place. Okay, great. Everyone taking notes on that? Maximizing what you got. Okay, amazing. Blockchain or Excel? Like you just go with Excel? I don't know. There are some people ask that question. It's, uh, it's just a throwaway question. Okay, lots of other things here. So is paying, this is a great question. It's, what do you think? Is paying ransomware a good or a bad idea? I mean, sometimes you must wonder if they've got everything and they're asking, what do you do? I love the question. Let me give you uh, an example I share with some of our clients, which will help situate this and I'll give my, my view. As a general proposition, we always recommend not to pay a ransom, but understand there may be circumstances where an organization has no choice. Think of all the tactics the hackers are using. So historically, if you imagine yourself in a room with a filing cabinet, all the hackers used to do was lock up the filing cabinet. You know the little button you have with the lock key on it? They would just press it and it was locked out. If you had a key, you had your data, you're good to go, right? So you did not have to pay. But hackers are smart. This is why cyber is different than other types of risks. Uh, when you think about business continuity or disaster recovery, those are like floods and fires. They're pretty static type of risks. Once you plan for it, you're good to go. Cyber, the tactics change. So the hackers realize, well, if they have a key and they can access the data, what can I do to scare them into making a payment? So they invented this new thing called double extortion. So just the filing cabinet with the lock key, that's single extortion. Double extortion is basically, before they lock it up, they pull a file out or they make a copy of that file and then they lock it. So even if you have that key, you may be incentivized in their mind to make a payment because they have sensitive data that belongs to you. And these hackers, like in that chain I was describing earlier, when they go and do that reconnaissance, they're smart. They're not just grabbing anything they can get their hands on. They're going after sensitive information. They'll look at client files, HR, insurance policies for cyber, which is an area which is we can, something we can talk about a bit later. But they're really focused on that. And then they pull that information and they're hoping that even if you're not willing to pay for the, the key to unlock the data, you'll be incentivized to pay for the data itself to be recovered. But to the question, uh, that was asked, even in that scenario, let's say you do end up making a payment. The short answer is you still have legal obligations. If they stole somebody's social insurance or social security number, for example, or other kinds of sensitive information that we we're talking about earlier, well, you still have to notify them under law. So you're not gonna be better off by making that payment, number one. Number two, with some of the geopolitical challenges we're seeing, especially with the Ukraine and, and Russia conflict, a lot of governments have put sanctions on some individuals, some organizations and entities. It is illegal, flat out illegal, to pay a sanctioned entity by the Office of Foreign Asset Control in the US, which is a division of the Treasury Department or other equivalent in other countries, including in Canada. So if you're thinking about making a payment, the short answer is you may have to go through some regulatory and compliance hoops. You still have to meet your legal requirements to notify individuals regardless of payment. And thirdly, you're dealing with criminals and there's an ethical issue there about whether you want to do that or not. Just kind of launching off what you just said, one of the questions is, in the event of a breach, what does the playbook look like? You mentioned a number of things there. Is there, is there sort of a, a particular way that uh, everything everyone should be notifying? How, how does that look? So let's, let's talk about a standard breach. So you're run of the mill, we're talking about ransomware, so we'll use that as an example. Uh, organization X has been hacked. Um, now you're, you're sort of encrypted or you've taken systems offline because some of your data is locked up. You can't access it anymore. What do you do? 
Step one, and not to sound self-serving, you want to get a breach coach involved. A breach coach is typically a lawyer who's going to quarterback the response, give legal advice. And the reason you typically have a lawyer is so that we can have what we call solicitor-client privilege. Not to bore the viewers with legalese, but at the end day, a lawyer and a client have a safe space. They can share information. The client gives me the facts as fulsome as they can. I give legal advice. That space is privilege, essentially. So breach coach gets in. We bring in different parties, such as a cybersecurity firm, to help contain the incident, which is to make sure that the bad guys are out. Get your systems back up and running if you have backups. And then ultimately, making sure that you're meeting your legal requirements. And there's a lot of variations to this and nuances. But if you had a situation where Imran were contemplating making a payment, tell me what the playbook or the framework is for considering that. Here's what it would look like. Three scenarios where you may contemplate making a payment. Scenario number one, you're, you're dead in the water. You need that key to unlock the, the filing cabinet because you don't have a backup key and it's, impo it's impossible to get access to the data otherwise. So you may be incentivized to buy the decryptor to get back up and running. Scenario number two is you have backups. So you have a key, you can open that filing cabinet, but the hackers actually took some of the most sensitive information. I put emphasis on sensitive, not embarrassing. Most sensitive information in your organization. Client information, but I've had clients who've had research and development information, intellectual property involved, a variety of other types of confidential information as well that is extremely sensitive if it got out into the public realm. So in that situation, you're not buying the key, you're buying the suppression of the data. And there's risk with that as well if you make a payment because hacker can go back on their word, they can try to restore it, et cetera, et cetera. The last scenario, and I never recommend this, is what we call a nuisance payment, uh, which is you have the backups, you're restoring, it's taking some time. The data is not uber critical or sensitive. It is something which is basically embarrassing and you prefer the, your organization's name not being out there. But you're willing to pay what we call a nuisance payment, a couple of cents on the dollar for them to just go away. And the reason we don't recommend it other than the fact that you're dealing with criminals is the risk is very high. Remember that supply chain that I mentioned earlier? You, with the more middle people you have, chances are they're going to all want to get paid. So if the demand was a million dollars and you guys settle, for example, with a $100,000 payment, the person on one of the chain may say, well, I put all this time and effort. I know it sounds counterintuitive to say that when criminals are involved, but I put all this time and effort to steal credentials or to steal the data. I think it's too little. I want more money. And the chance of a re-extortion is much higher at that point. That is absolutely fascinating. Thank you for laying out those scenarios and sort of how, how it might work and what absolutely not to do. So I think we've got time maybe for two quick questions here. We'll put this one to you. In your opinion, what is the best digital storage technology? I mean, we're not asking you too much to name names, but I guess, I guess we are. <laughs> In terms of storage technology, there's so many options that are out there. What I recommend clients to do, I don't really promote or, or, or endorse one particular technology over another, but do your diligence. If you see it's market leading, if you see, for example, that they're active in your particular industry, you want to do some verification. You have IT professionals within or even outside of your organizations. Do a, a check. Is this used widely? What have been the issues? You know, so on and so forth. The one thing I will say, there are a ton of tools that are out there. What hackers are doing more and more is looking for what we call zero day vulnerabilities. And that shouldn't scare anybody from using those technologies. I'll explain why. A zero day vulnerability is a, is a vulnerability in a software that nobody has discovered, including the creator of the software. 
So basically imagine you've, you've had a house built, you haven't moved into it necessarily just yet, but you've got a burglar who's trying to see what the vulnerabilities are. Did you leave a window open? Is there a back door to the garage? Is there some other way I can get into the house? So the zero day vulnerability are very difficult to identify and by the time an organization discovers it, the hackers may have already gotten in. It doesn't happen very frequently, but it does happen. So when you're looking at different storage uh, services that are out there, ask them what their process is to patch vulnerabilities they find. How quick are they to get those patches out to the broader community, including yourselves, if you're gonna use that technology so that you can make sure you remedy it. This is amazing, Imran, thank you so much. Uh, how can advisors add value ultimately to, to, to their clients to make sure that things are safe and uh, ultimately help their clients do what they need to do in, in terms of saving? I'll, I'll come back full circle to some of the earlier comments I was making. I think advisors in particular are uniquely positioned. They're one of the, the few in our industries, uh, when you look at professional services in particular, who have direct human to human contact almost on a daily basis. Super, super important. You will know very quickly when, when the individual, your, your client comes into the room the first time they said, my, my time horizon for retirement is so-and-so. Here's what my risk appetite looks like. Here's what I'm willing to do X, Y, and Z. And as you develop that relationship over the years, you have an idea of what their kids are like, who's going to university and so on. And the moment something out of the norm happens, because the advisor is always informed if something material is happening on an account for one of their clients, they will be the first ones to pick up the phone and say, you know, Jane, John Doe, is this what you're asking for? Is this legitimate? And that analog validation can save them hundreds of thousands of dollars, not millions in some cases. Amazing. It has been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and, and also some of your advice, Imran Ahmed. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. I'm Pamela Ritchie. Thank you for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.